0: I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Here's a fact. Palm oil is the most popular vegetable oil on the planet. You might not cook with palm oil, but you most likely consume it every single day, if not several times a day. Palm products are in your shampoo, your laundry detergent, ice cream, cookies, soap, chocolate, even your lipstick. If you Google, what is palm oil in, the first page you'll see is the World Wildlife Fund. And you can click on all these different products and see exactly what palm oil is used for. Well, today, palm oil is making headlines as we speak. And it has to do with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You've probably heard by now that Russia is a major exporter of wheat, and that's becoming a food security problem for countries like Egypt and Turkey and Bangladesh that rely heavily on that supply. What you might not have heard about is that Russia is also a major exporter of crude oil, and the price of palm oil is directly tied to crude Amal Chatterjee is a purchasing manager at Puratos, the multinational family business that makes the baking products behind your pancake mixes and the muffins you get at Costco or Safeway. Amal's going to explain what COVID did to our supply chains, what Ukraine has to do with palm oil, and what other conflicts in the world are affecting our food supply today. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, and if you didn't, tell me. You can find me, Jane Z at farm.two.future on Instagram. All right, on to the show. So excited to chat about supply chain and all the things that have been going on the last two years. Welcome to the podcast, Amal.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: I was looking at your LinkedIn, and I'm so curious about this uh, corn research paper that you wrote. And then also, I would love to hear about your time at Monsanto before working at Pirato's.
1: Well, I am by training an agricultural economist, and after I graduated from the University of the Philippines, I was hired by my professors to do a bunch of studies, and one of them was to look at the benefits of using BT corn, which was brand new to the Philippines at that time. So uh, corn borers are uh, an insidious insect that are very hard to kill because they bury inside the the corn uh, itself, so the insecticide can't touch it. Well, Monsanto had come up with a way of infusing a protein into the corn that was harmful to only that particular insect, um, which was completely revolutionary uh, at the time through genetic modification. So it was the first strain of genetically modified corn, and it was kind of a big deal because people were afraid of it. They didn't understand what the benefits were. So uh, we had to do two seasons in the Philippines. We have a a full year where you can do actually two or three crops if you want to do really intensive planting. What happened was we had to go and find farmers during the first season who did not plant BT corn and farmers that planted BT corn. In the first season that we did it, we found maybe 20 farmers that planted this BT corn. Six months later, nearly everyone had shifted.
0: Mm.
1: Like it was almost instantaneous. And farmers are among the most conservative people in the world they don't like to change to new technology they really want to see some results and the results were so drastic because that year there was an infestation and farmers sprayed and sprayed and sprayed but they still get didn't get the yield of farmers who didn't spray at all mm. um, so the uh, the genetically modified corn really worked and uh, they got a because there was a shortage of corn in the market they got really high prices so farmers just immediately shifted to this new seed. So what happened was uh, uh, I went to the U.S. for further studies. I got a a master's degree and uh, I decided to try practicing interviewing skills at a job fair and Monsanto was there. And I said, all right, uh, give it a shot. Let's see what they have. And they said, we're interested in your background, but uh, we're looking for supply chain people and uh, you have a background in economics. So would you be interested in an internship? I said, sure. I've never done the private sector before. Let's try it. So you have two choices. You have Augusta, Georgia, which is our facility that does uh, the Pozolac, which is a, a BST, It goes into milk. And then we have uh, Soda Springs, Idaho, which is our one of our most beautiful plants. They're really selling it to me in the middle of God's country. I said, I choose Augusta, Georgia. I heard it has a nice golf course, and I'd like to learn golf. And they said, good. You're going to Soda Springs, Idaho. So I stayed in Soda Springs, Idaho, for around nine months throughout winter. And I learned about the herbicide business and the newly burgeoning business of, of Monsanto. So they were, they were a spin-off of Pfizer. Pfizer had bought them mm. and then spun off their entire agricultural division because they didn't see any profit in it or they didn't want any of the baggage that came with the Monsanto name. So they kept it separate. And then Monsanto basically um, started getting into the uh, genetically modified seeds and slowly the genetically modified seeds became 100% of its business. Now the herbicide mm. business is probably like 10% of its business because it's generic now. The, the patent is available and Chinese manufacturers can outsell American manufacturers because they don't have the same environmental constraints that the U.S. does. Mm. So I, I did around seven years of that. Loved it. Uh, I was a uh, capital equipment buyer and then I became a chemical buyer and then I did procurement finance for a little bit, but my wife couldn't find a job in, in, in St. Louis. She found a job at U of Penn and uh, I moved to uh, Philadelphia and uh, Paratus was the first company that uh, took me off the market and I've been here since and it's been, it's been fun. It's, it's a fun company to work for because it deals with ingredients that uh, I studied my whole life, which is, you know, wheat and sugar and oil and all these farm products, which are very commodity driven and very interesting. Mm.
0: I feel like any company with a unicorn for its logo has got to be fun, right?
1: (laughs) They try to keep it fun, yes.
0: So Uh, Purato's, you all make baking products, right? Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: We're a privately held uh, company based out of Brussels. It's still owned by the same family. And what we do is we specialize in uh, bakery ingredients. The easiest way to explain it is if you've ever bought pancake mix, you basically add water, add an egg, and then you mix it, and then you cook it on your stove. Well, what I learned is the bakery products that you buy in a grocery store or at a Starbucks kind of go through the same thing. They go through an industrial baker who basically takes these mixes, blends them together, and then partially bakes them, freezes them. And then when it comes to your grocery store, that partially frozen bread is baked in an oven, and you have your freshly baked grocery bought store bread Mm. that's essentially what our business is uh, in a nutshell we also do the cakes we have a lot of big customers that you know do do the brownies and that mix because that uses a different kind of wheat and then we also do wet products so the chocolates the things that go on top of a cake inside a pie the fruit fillings that kind of deal so soup to nuts if it's bakery ingredients uh, or part of the baking industry we can make anything
0: Mm. I remember as a kid growing up in Canada, we would always get those muffins from Superstore, which is the equivalent. It's kind of like a Safeway, kind of like a Walmart, but better. <laughs> uh, but we would always get those giant muffins, and yeah, that was a big part of my childhood.
1: I'm glad. <laughs> well, I, I tell people that uh, my R and D department samples at my current job taste a lot better than my R and D samples at the. Uh, at Monsanto, herbicide <laughs> does not taste good at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd hope not. <laughs> oh man. So, yeah, tell us a bit more about your day to day. So, you manage supply chain for specifically fats and oils. Is that right?
1: Correct. So, I'm a purchasing manager for fats, oils, emulsifiers, and we have this broad category called uh, ingredients, and that encompasses things like phosphates and ascorbic acid and tartaric acid small quantities of things that are critical to the finished product, things like flavors and uh, little odds and ends. So my job basically is to manage risk for the company by booking pricing when I see that the markets are favorable and informing the company of what I see are possible risks to our supply chain based on what I'm seeing on the market or what my suppliers are telling me. It's been a rough two years, like uh, usually with food, it's pretty stable. It's always the same year after year. What only changes is um, yields. So if the crop yield is bad, prices go out of whack. Or if there's a market play by Wall Street, commodity prices go out of whack for you know a couple of months. But uh, COVID has thrown a wrench into everything, and it has changing tastes and preferences, and at the same time disrupting the supply chain for everything. It's kind of hard to see what the future is. All you can uh, tell your The president of your company is bad news, prepare for the worst. Yeah, which is uh, not what your president wants to hear when you're trying to grow the business.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, for sure, getting into the supply chain stuff, but you mentioned changing tastes and preferences. What have you seen on your end as far as changes over COVID?
1: Uh Ah, so our business has changed um, a little bit. So uh, our sales for any kind of restaurant... Uh, like a, a KFC or whatever bread that comes with, with fast food or an olive garden or, or, or something like that dropped off. Nobody went to restaurants anymore. But our sales didn't decline. Our sales actually went up because it got picked up by all the sales that we were making in the grocery stores. Basically, what we learned was the grocery stores have adapted really, really well to COVID and put a lot of channels. To allow consumers basically to buy as remotely as possible and still get what they want so we see instacart we see all these people basically delivering to your house we see amazon fresh and and, and competitors like that and our sales are growing through that and we we also saw a lot of at-home bakers who started to try and make their own bread and and things like that but we thought our volume would go down it didn't happen so Mm. it just shifted to just another chain where people are consuming more at home rather than going out
0: I, I wonder too, with the COVID fifteen or COVID twenty, you know, if if you've seen overall volume of consumption go up.
1: Oh well, I can't speak for the entire industry as a whole, but I can speak for my company. Volume is up. Hmm. We have sold more in the last two years than we have ever sold before.
0: Huh. Wow. That's so interesting. So let's talk about the flip side of how you've been able to wrangle together supply chains to meet that demand, because I'm sure there's been so many hurdles you, you've had to jump through. Tell us yep. a bit about what some of the biggest challenges are with sourcing supply.
1: The biggest challenge with sourcing supply is making sure it gets in the door. So my job as a purchasing manager is to you know, get the best value for my company and I can get the price down to zero, but it doesn't matter if the the truck doesn't back into the door and I get the product, right? So if my supplier says, yeah, I'll give it to you for nothing, but it doesn't deliver, it doesn't help my company. So it has to arrive. And honestly, what we've learned over the past two years is the supply chain for food is more interconnected across countries than we actually thought it was. So uh, you might be buying from supplier that's based out of Georgia and in in the South, but uh, they may have five or six raw materials that are coming from France, India, China, Japan, and they're waiting for those raw materials to come in before they can make the stuff that I need. Mm. So um, it's the same for our customers. So when they say, hey, how come something is late? It's like, well, this special deformer hasn't arrived from France yet. So I need to be able to find a way to solve that problem just as a, a general example. But yeah, freight is a big issue uh, for us. It's taking a lot longer.
0: Can you give us a sense of like what magnitude we're talking?
1: All right, so let's talk about the biggest one. So China is a source of a lot of fine chemicals, some phosphates, some ascorbic acid, and, and, and things like that. Last year, the price of freight from China went from around $6,000 a container, and each container is like 40,000 pounds, So it went from around $6,000 to up to $32,000 for a container. So there was a lot of competition for those containers to get to the U.S. And, uh, you know, they make other things too, electronics. So more high-value stuff got space on ships compared to more lower-value stuff like ascorbic acid, which is used for food or or, or phosphates or, or things like that. That's just ocean freight. Now, add congestion to the ports. So even if you get it on a ship, the ship may not be able to get a berthing dock for seven to eight days, which is unheard of. Sometimes they're, 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 they're waiting at sea for two weeks for uh, a crane to unload them. Wow. And once it gets unloaded, then you have trucking. This has been a, a, a train crash that's been a long time coming, but it's we're, we're feeling the effects of it. So for freight, the average age of people who drive trucks, they're old. They're retiring, and they're not getting replaced. The number of drivers available – for the increased demand that we're seeing for moving from the ports to final destinations. Well, that supply is declining, which means that freight rates are climbing like crazy. And even if you can pay the price, finding a truck that's willing to carry your freight sometimes is is, is quite challenging. Not all trucks are the same. There are trucks that can basically only carry liquid oils. There are trucks that can only carry refrigerated uh, material and there are special classes of licenses among them, the more specialized a truck driver, the harder it is to find. I, I bet truck drivers that are in increased demand uh, in the U.S. would be the ones that can carry hazardous cargo. Mm. Things like uh, they know how to pull acids. Or they know how to pull things that if it caused a major spill on a roadway, they know how to clean that up or, or contain it. And those guys are retiring mm. and no one is replacing them. It's just all coming to a head. And uh, it, it has not been able to get trucks in the door.
0: Huh. Sounds like we need some kind of recruiting campaign for truckers.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's not a fun job. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, You're, you're on the road all the time. There are restrictions. The U S government has learned that if you keep a truck driver driving too long, they tend to get sleepy and cause accidents. So they put governors on um, all trucks. Basically you can't drive more than I think, uh, eight or nine hours straight without taking a break. And, Mm -hmm. uh, they can monitor each individual truck. So all trucks are bound by this schedule. So they can't do certain amount of hours per day unless they have another driver and, you
0: know, mm. a
1: tag team of truck. But, yeah, uh, I think it's good, but it also adds a constraint to an already tight market.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's not that pleasant a job, but I know a ton of people who are Uber drivers or Lyft drivers in the city. And it's a little bit different. Shorter distances, you get more breaks. But generally, you're you're still driving, right? That's the bulk of your job. And I wonder if oh,
1: yeah, but with uh with Uber, you get to go home at night. With a truck that's driver, true. you sleep in your cab.
0: Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah, you're I guess you're on like a perpetual road trip.
1: That's exactly what it is. You'll take a couple of breaks every month and maybe see your family two or three times a month for a couple of days, but you're on the road the whole time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is a tough life. Well, for anyone w- that wants that adventure, <laughs> I'm sure there's very well-paying positions. I want to go back to what you mentioned around the shipping containers. In our prep call, when we spoke, you mentioned there's a imbalance of shipping containers across ports. Can you say more about that?
1: There was, yes, the reason for any price increase is always an imbalance in supply and demand. And if you want to put anything on a boat, you need to put it on a shipping container. And the U.S. over the last two years has been pulling a lot of shipping containers from around the world, but not sending them back as in, in the same frequency. So there is an imbalance in shipping containers across the countries, and that's driving the availability of, of freight from other countries to here. Usually what happens is the empty containers just go back. Now people are being charged a lot of money to put empty containers on a boat to bring it back to another country, which mm-hmm. is kind of unheard of, but that that's just one facet of, of the shipping.
0: It makes me think, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are doing shipping container homes here in North America. And, it, you know, it makes sense why if we have a ton of sh- empty shipping containers just lying around, but as an outsider, I'm thinking, well, first of all, why is it that we need shipping containers to move freight? Is that a legal thing or is there not other materials we can use?
1: Well, a shipping container basically is uh, regulated by international standards, which means that it's a metal box and it's always going to be the same size, whether it's built in any other country. So it's basically a, a Lego block that you buy or rent space on, so that it can go on a ship and they can stack it perfectly. If everyone made their own shipping containers out of wood or plastic or whatever to different sizes, we'd go back to the 1700s, which was that's how they did it, where things were just carried in nets or on pallets open, and you don't have the efficiency of stacking things like you would on a a container ship. So if you you look at a container ship, I think two-thirds of the container ship is just these Lego-like block pieces stuck on everything. It's basically for uniformity and it, it keeps the cost of freight down because think of it this way. One of the most expensive things about freight is whenever you get a human involved. The only time a human is really involved with with freight is when you're loading a ship or unloading a ship. Piloting the ship, yeah, that, that's part of it. But you're piloting a ship that has like thousands of containers on it. But if your crane operator has to make decisions for every single container, like every tiny little container, it makes it really hard. But because the containers are all the same size, you can have a computer to it because Mm -hmm. it's all the same, right? So it it automates the process uh, a lot and that's where you get your cost savings.
0: Gotcha, interesting. And we've reached this weird point where those cost savings aren't really worth panning out for us, but hopefully they'll balance back soon.
1: When we start sending more containers back to the countries, which means uh, when we start selling product, because that's how you get a container back to the other country. So you take that container and like China will buy something from the U.S. like soybean oil or fertilizer or cars or things like that. Mm-hmm. Then it'll go on a container and then that's how it goes back to, to China or to Europe or all that. It's a trade and uh trade balances
0: yeah so one of the materials you source is palm oil right um does that how is that stored? does that come in barrels inside the shipping containers
1: actually um no so that comes on a special ship Uh, the volume of oil of, of food oil especially from palm that's traded around the world is so large that they really don't put it in like a container they have like tankers, ship tankers that get filled just to carry that oil Mm. from from Malaysia and from Indonesia. And um, those countries export that crude palm oil or that refined palm oil, and it gets pumped out at a refiner in in the US. So it has to be someplace close to water. Um, And then it gets processed into other things like uh, shortening, which is like margarine, or they deodorize it and repackage it. So it has an extended shelf life and then they ship it in in trucks, liquid bulk trucks to whoever needs to use it.
0: Do you have like a whole truck that's just filled with oil? Yes. Huh? Yep. I didn't know they did that.
1: Yep. Whole truck that's filled with oil and the plant has to have a large tank that's capable of handling more than two trucks because you don't want to overfill that tank. Interesting. So the bigger the company, the more tanks that they have, because they have to keep all this, these, these materials in in house.
0: You had mentioned before that the price of palm oil has gone up because of the Russia-Ukraine war. How does that all make sense?
1: Oh, well, your timing is actually impeccable because something else has happened in the last week since last Friday. So palm oil is the world's most popular vegetable oil. It's a cheap source of fat, which is basically what an oil is, and typically follows, believe it or not, Crude oil. So crude oil is what we use to process diesel or gasoline or aviation fuel. And the reason it, it follows that is there are mandates in each country where they require some palm oil to be used to make gasoline or diesel. It's called a like a biodiesel mandate. A lot of countries uh, have that. I think the U.S. has a, a similar mandate. If you've heard of ethanol, it's not palm, but it's actually corn that's used to actually make ethanol, which gets put back into, into gasoline. It's exactly the, the same thing. So Indonesia, Malaysia, they have these mandates. And as a result, they, they kind of trend together. Well, what happened with Ukraine was it threw the market into extreme uncertainty. The price of crude oil went up because Russia is a big exporter of, of crude oil. So the supply shrunk. Whenever supply goes down and the demand stays the same, the price goes up. So palm prices have been on a tear, especially. To compound that, on Friday last week, Indonesia decided that they would ban the exportation of refined, bleached, and deodorized palm which is basically vegetable oil. Mm. And they, they said that they were doing that because they wanted to keep the price of palm oil locally in Indonesia cheap, so they don't want people rioting. So the prices are skyrocketing and people can't cook because they can't afford the oil. So they wanted to bring the price of oil down. So they decided no more exporting of the palm olene. Now that scared the market a little bit, but then the markets kind of recovered on Monday because they were like, most people don't really buy the refined product. They buy the crude palm, which gets processed into other things. So that's going to be okay. Well, on Wednesday they changed their minds and said all palm, even crude palm. So right now the market has no idea what the Mm -hmm. price is going to be. So Prices are on a tear right now. No one is quoting. There's so much uncertainty on the market right now, which is which is crazy. And what's crazy about it is, Indonesia is 60 percent of the export market for palm. They hold a lot of clout. Wow. The biggest question that everybody is asking is, where are they going to store all of this palm? Most of the palm that they make is for export, domestic consumption. While big is going to just take a small sliver of that. So. Are they going to shut down plants? Is that what they want to do? What's going on here? Hmm. So to be determined, we have no idea. So uh, right now, I have hyperacidity just thinking about this. I have no idea what what my supply chain for palm uh, is going to be because I have a lot of things that depend
0: on it. Yeah, I bet. No wonder your whole team's pinging you. Oh, man, we are in the thick of it. Um, that kind of reminds me of there was a maple syrup heist in Canada. I can't remember when, sometime in the last 10 years. And Canada has this national stockpile of maple syrup in case things go south. So Indonesia has got to figure something out.
1: Yeah. um, I'm pretty sure things will come to a head. The thing with uncertainty is the more uncertainty you put on a market, the higher prices are because the price basically carries the risk. And when when it's risky to buy, Uh, prices go up.
0: So in this kind of situation, what kinds of options would you look to? Because palm oil, I mean, that's probably one of the ingredients that are in most of your products, right? And probably difficult to replace. So I guess in this case, what options would you be looking at?
1: (sighs) Well, that's a a good question. The answer to that is we're not 100% sure because whenever um, you change an ingredient, you have to change the ingredient declaration to your customers. And your customers, in turn, have to change the ingredient declaration to their customers. So it's not easy for me to switch from palm to, let's say, soy, soybean oil, or to canola oil, or to another type of oil without creating this huge avalanche of downstream effects because soybean oil is considered an allergen. It has to be treated a little bit with more care at the plant, and not a lot of plants uh, that our customers may be equipped to deal with that. So they may not be happy with switching to soy. Canola, they're not the same. The main issue is our products have to be baked, and when you, you put the oil in the product, it responds differently to temperature across the various oils that are on the market. So we already have dialed down the formula for palm oil. If we change the oil, we may have to change the recipe and that's a huge undertaking mm. because we carry lots and lots of recipes, hundreds and hundreds of recipes. So I'm not looking forward to the work that comes. If there is no, no palm coming,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: don't think that's going to happen, but, uh, we don't know. Yeah. Everything is too uncertain.
0: How long of a time period do you carry inventory for?
1: Oh, at my plant? Mm-hmm. Um, well <clears throat> it depends on production, but for some items, I can carry up to maybe a month's worth of inventory. Our suppliers can carry up to maybe three months of inventory, but they're always expecting that there are ships that are coming. If that doesn't get replaced or if there are late shipments or things like that, they may actually have less uh, in their tanks. So we're not really sure, but we have at least a month.
0: Okay. So you've got a little bit of time to figure things out.
1: A, a month in, in manufacturing is not a lot of time at all. So uh, that it, it goes by super fast.
0: Right. Right. Um, And I'm guessing for something like palm oil, that'd be really hard to source locally or domestically in the US. But are there other ingredients that you've found that you've been able to find locally?
1: Uh, Yes. So most of the things that we can find locally are high value items like uh, flavors and and, and colors and, and, and things like that. Some emulsifiers that have a lot of high value or added value processing. Can be sourced uh, in the U.S., but you know the the raw material for that still is Indonesia and Malaysia. They're the two largest countries that are not, that are responsible for 90% of all the palm in the world. So palm can only grow on the equator. There are no palm or palm kernel trees or farms in in Florida or Hawaii. That's all sugarcane country or or pineapple country or you know that land's already been taken for some other stuff. There really isn't much of uh, an alternative to find that. But yeah, there are. A good example is sunflowers. We buy sunflower oil, sunflower seeds. We recently went through a scare with Ukraine because Ukraine apparently was responsible for 70% of the sunflowers that were coming on the world market. And when Mm. Russia invaded Ukraine, that supply chain completely shut down. So we were forced to, to find alternate sources. So luckily, we were able to find a domestic source for it. And switch some things around, and uh, we were able to find even North American sources for the seeds. So, yeah, there are, there are ways of finding local supply, but you know it comes at a cost. Uh, but the cost compared to having it, you'd rather have it, right? So, if if you look at the the hierarchy of needs, the the most important hierarchy is you have to get it in the door. You have to satisfy the demand for it. Everything else is secondary.
0: And just to clarify, so piratus is an international company, are you sourcing the supply chain for all those different uh, branches of the company or just the U.S. plants?
1: I'm only doing it for the United States. Okay. So okay. I have multiple plants in the United States that I'm doing it for.
0: Okay, nice. I feel like your job is like whack-a-mole. You know, one thing's done and then you got to- uh, Very apt. I
1: have described my job as that. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of whack-a-mole.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I don't envy you but godspeed to everything you're you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um I want to touch on one more thing which is there's a lot of conflicts going on in the world that most of us don't track that you're probably tracking. Last time we talked you mentioned I think it was gum arabic that comes from oh, yes. sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, can you tell us about that and and maybe some of the other, you know, world news that that you're seeing that we might not even know affects our Food supply?
1: Well, I only know what I know based on the problems that I run into, right? So we have had a scare last year because our supply chain for acacia gum or gum arabic was affected by unrest in South Sudan. So gum arabic comes from the baobab tree, um, which is grown in Sub Saharan Africa and it is put on ships in Juba, South Sudan, and then shipped to Europe through the Suez Canal, processed or sent directly to uh, the United States for our supply chain. But because of civil war, all this uh, material had to be trucked um, across the desert to Cairo instead of traveling from Sudan in order to get to our final destination. So conflict, any conflict, will disrupt your supply chain. We're starting to see a lot of disruptions because of that. The biggest thing that I'm most concerned about is one of the busiest waterways is the south china sea nearly everybody needs to pass through that it's basically the sea around the philippines and singapore and malaysia nearly all ships need to pass whether they're coming from india or going to europe you know china has been building a military presence in that area which could lead to you know friction and any friction in that area can disrupt shipping lanes which adds weeks and weeks to travel times which time is money the longer it stays on the water, the more expensive things become. So it's a potential flashpoint and uh, it's in the news a lot, but that's kind of the reason why it is uh, people are keeping a, a very close look on that. So whenever they talk about Taiwan or China saying the, the threatening about taking over Taiwan, that's kind of the whole deal there. If, if that ever happens, that entire strait will be off limits, you know, it will turn into a war zone and then who knows what's going to happen to global shipping. It's such an artery for the, for the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'd be kind of trying to (laughs) find a, a polite word to say it, but yeah, we'd be pretty screwed. Um, Thank you so much, Amal, for for sharing all of this. It's so insightful and hearing from you firsthand what's going on. Any last words you want to share with listeners? We got a lot of very eco-conscious folks listening here. Um, From a consumer standpoint, is there anything you you would advise us to to do or kind of think differently about?
1: The companies or the people that will do the best in these uncertain times are... People who are willing to adapt. You have to be willing to see what's out there in case there's something that goes missing from your pantry. So try new things. If you don't see something on your supermarket shelf that you're used to, don't go home empty handed. Try an alternative. You might like it more or you may not. But uh, for the people in my group, the reason we keep doing what we're doing is. We like the challenge of adapting to an ever-changing environment. And we got it in spades this year. But if we don't react to every day like it's a brand new day with a different set of constraints, we're dead in the water and we won't be doing anything for our company. So that kind of mindset would translate most to to everybody. We are in uncertain times and we have to have this mentality where you just accept change. It's, It's happening and you just roll with it. And the people that roll with it the most tend to come out well in the end.
0: Yeah. Roll with it and you'll thrive. I love that mentality. Thank you so much, Amal. Thank you for sharing your time with us and um, best of luck with all the challenges in front of you.
1: Thank you, Jay. It was a pleasure.
0: And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.